of madness. Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the regents of King Charles VI from the first one to the last one <laughs> that, we, that we're doing. Something, something, <laughs> descend into madness, something, something. Supreme. Okay, awesome. Um, <laughs> this is the best intro to any episode ever. Yes, it is. Uh, so, Shumapel, Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And we're joined once again by the lovely Veronica from Past Podcasts. Woo! Hello. <laughs> so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me again. I'm really looking forward. Yeah. That was a very interesting intro. It's the best one you've mm-hmm. ever heard in your life. <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. I'm sure Ben will use some of his editing magic and make yeah, it sound just, amazing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you, you think that, but then sometimes I just leave in weirdness. the entertaining <laughs> mess. <laughs> it's, yeah. Why not? It, it's um, entertaining. People listen to you, so yeah. you're doing something right. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, but, uh, by the way, we, uh, since we recorded last episode, we surpassed 100,000 downloads, which is very exciting. Yay. I'm so happy for you. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. So I imagine it's partly because of the lovely boost we've had from collaborating with yep. other talented people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't uh, think it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, you never but thank know. You. Today we are talking about our last two subjects for the Regency of Madness. Mm-hmm. Veronica will be talking about Charles, Duke of Orléans, uh-huh. the son of the same Duke of Orléans who got um, assassinated in the streets of Paris Mm -hmm. um, and still is yet to receive justice. Um, Uh. And I will be talking about John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford, an Englishman. Gasp. I'll be using that to my advantage. Yes, yes. (laughs) But he's an Englishman who did pleasantly surprise me in in a few ways. So I'll start with the birth of my guy because he was born first. Yes. Um, So John of Lancaster, later known as the Duke of Bedford, Mm -hmm. was born on the 20th of June, 1389. At the time of his birth, nobody thought this guy would come (laughs) anywhere near the English throne, let alone the French throne. Wouldn't amount to anything. No. Well, it's because of his placement in the order of succession Mm, at the time of his birth. So he, so he was a great grandson of Edward III of England, mm-hmm. and neither his father nor his grandfather were kings. Not yet. There were like anyway. twenty-five grandsons or something like that. Yeah, yeah. there were lo- like Edward III had lots of babies, and they in turn had lots of babies as well. So this is a big family. But everyone dies. Spoiler alert! Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the king at the time of his birth was his first cousin once removed, Richard II, mm. the, the son of the Black Prince, yeah. who at the time was still young and it looked like he'd, you know, produce an heir either by his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, but that didn't happen, yeah. or maybe his second wife, Isabella of France, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Bedford's grandfather, John of Gaunt, the first Duke, the first royal Duke of Lancaster, was Richard II's sort of benevolent, if overambitious, mentor, <laughs> and yes. also one of Veronica's favorite historic, uh, historical I figures. I love him. <laughs> I think he's just fascinating. 
And he kind of, like, ensured that Richard II's reign went as smoothly as it could. He did um, amazing at that. Nice. <laughs> he really did. But when Gaunt dies, his uh, everything kind of falls to of crap. Course. And his son, Henry Bolingbroke, uh, took over, becoming the new Duke of Lancaster and Richard II's worst nightmare. <laughs> Cutting a very long story short, which you can hear more about if you listen to Rex Factor or any of the one billion podcasts that cover the English monarchy. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> I even discussed this a little in John of Gaunt's episodes. <laughs> cutting a very long story short, Bolingbroke deposed and probably definitely murdered Richard. And after conveniently ignoring some female relatives uh, with better claims than him, Bolingbroke uh, became King Henry IV of England, mm-hmm. which in turn made his sons princes and later dukes. And it's at his father's coronation in 1399 that Henry IV's third son, 10-year-old Bedford, was dubbed a Knight of the Garter, um, his official entry onto the political stage. So that is how Bedford comes into being. (laughs) (laughs) But he's still like the third son, so he's still like not super significant. His grandfather was the third son as well, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's that. Something about third sons. Yeah, seriously. Alas, I am the second son. I am <laughs> loser. <laughs> you will have to, to, one daughter and die of. I will have pains one daughter. <laughs> and that daughter Don't die of will... stomach pains in Italy, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll just share that um, Charles of Orleans was is the longest subject I've done. Um, it took me six episodes. To cover him. So this will be the shortest summary I can manage. Nice. Um, And I could have made it probably longer than six episodes, but I had to (laughs) stop myself. There's just, it it doesn't sound real at times. So he was born on the 24th of November, 1394. And he was named after his uncle, Charles VI, Mm -hmm. who was also his godfather. It's really exciting when a king's your godfather. Like the only other person that's better is the pope. Yeah, and you get a great name. So, um, And he was the oldest surviving son of Louis of Orléans and Valentina Visconti. And mm-hmm. in Valentina's family's name, like almost all the women's names start with V, which I think <laughs> is really cool. That is. It's very cute. If, yeah, if you know, a little silly once you become an adult, but it works. It works well. Um, <laughs> and he had three younger brothers. So Philip, John, and John the Bastard. And one sister, Margaret. And yes, that is oh, two Johns. Of course. And no Louis. Because his dad's name is Louis, and I can't figure out why they didn't name one of the one of the three younger children Louis. Mm. And my favorite story about his mother, um, I find her completely fascinating. Her favorite child actually appears to have been John the Bastard. Oh. So she was quoted as saying, I have been robbed of him because she just loved him so much. In the novel In a Darkwood Wandering, which is about uh, Charles of Orléans. Um, I need to read this. <laughs> Valentina and the mother are like close friends uh, and they have this very like tragic kind of friendship cool. where like Valentina knows that it is inevitable that her husband will screw her. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's this she weird really like tragic thing. But because she, like, loved her friend so much, like, it became her favorite child. Yeah, it's like, 
It's a weird thing, but that's not it's, historically No. <laughs> I was like, that would be fascinating if true. But no, she like she raised John the Bastard without any problems and she mm-hmm. sounds amazing. So that is pretty good. Charles was born in Paris, but when he was 17 months old, his mother was banished from court. Mm. And it's because she had this really calming effect on Charles VI when he would have his breakdowns. Yeah. And that was threatening to some of the men at court. And so they were they were sent to Way, and Charles went with her to Orléans, where they stayed, and his father would visit often. And if you look at the dates of his siblings' births, he was he was there quite regularly. Huh. They managed to have two further children while she was in exile. Huh. Nice. And then when Charles was 11, in June of 1406, he married Isabella mm. of Valois, Queen of England. And I we just heard about her a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and she was completely unimpressed and cried at the altar because she was 16 yeah, and he's 11 and an adult and knew what was going on 16 and already the king of england's widow yeah. exactly so now she was like it was such a step down yeah. she'd had a horrible time in in england oh, uh. after richard died yeah yeah she was yeah, basically like a hostage was, yeah. and the yeah, english refused horrible. to give her back for ages and she's marrying the son of a duke so not a duke yeah the son of a duke which is just sure. like, Ugh. oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And they were then. first cousins. Hmm. And his parents were first cousins. Mm. So the pedigree chart for their child is shocking. <laughs> like, mm. papal dispensation was received because everyone is related. Oh, yeah. And she moved to Orléans with him, which is really odd. Like, he's hanging out, like, his mom's there and she's this grown up. And yeah. It's- yeah, I find, I find the setup quite odd. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the day before Charles's 13th birthday, his father was murdered, mm. which I, I think present. everyone has heard the story. Yeah, yeah, it actually happened to be the bastard's birthday. Oh. So it's it's oh. really horrific because I would have found out on Charles's birthday. Yeah. Oh. oh, and by the way, when we call him the bastard, and I'll be referring to him a lot in Joan of Arc's episode yes. as well. When we, when we call him the bastard... That's what he liked being called. Oh, yep. Uh, like that's what that's what he was. Yep. And it was considered like it was considered like a um because he's, he's the bastard of Orleans, which yeah. is prestigious. Um, yeah, like he's the bastard. I'm not just anyone. I'm the bastard. So when we call him that, it's not disparaging. It's like actually what he, he liked oh, being called. He wore the his badge his letters yeah. say the bastard. Like the <laughs> ba- the bastard. I did all. Say it correctly. Yep, he signed it off every I love single time. That. The bastard. He's like, I'm gonna own it, <laughs> and he's amazing in and of himself. <laughs> like, it's not his episode. I could do an episode on him because he's amazing too. He sounds. Um, and okay. of course, Louis was murdered by John the Fearless, mm-hmm. Duke of Burgundy. Boo. Yeah, how dare he? <laughs> That's okay. He met his end. <laughs> um. And once Valentina found out, she um, she immediately made plans to go to Paris, and she went there and she asked Charles VI, her beloved brother-in-law, for justice. Mm. And the king promised her that would happen, of course, only to be convinced by John the Fearless to forgive John. And Charles came to Paris in early September mm. um, for John the Fearless's hearing. Mm. And while he was waiting 
his mom had been sending funds back to Orléans and he had been using those funds to fortify his holdings. Hmm. So build up his castles and make sure there were supplies in all of them and make sure everyone was armed properly. And he's only 14 at this point. Wait, no, he's only 13 at this point. Damn. Yeah. So he's handling stuff like I can't imagine doing any of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and of course the king revoked his forgiveness to John the Fearless, mm. but he really didn't do much more. And mm. it's partially as, as you would have discussed last time, it's because John the Fearless had been winning battles in his holdings and it made everyone else quite nervous. Mm. So after that hearing, Charles went back to Orléans and then sadly on the 4th of December, 1408, Valentina died and oh. she was 37. Oh. And in keeping up with the whole family thing, she died on her daughter's birthday. Oh. Yeah. Mm. They really failed at this timing thing in this Mm -hmm. family. Now he's got no justice for his father, an uncle slash father-in-law who's doing basically (laughs) nothing. And he's also parenting four younger siblings. (laughs) The only good news is at some point around this time, Charles and Isabella consummated their marriage. Since he's now 14 and she was 17. So it's, you know, not one of the most shocking marriage combinations I've seen. Yeah, usually it's all the way around in terms of gender, so. Yeah. Although they they find a way to make even this consummation a a tragic. (laughs) Yeah, oh no. Like, there is nothing but tragedy in the first few years of of Charles's life. (laughs) Actually, in all of his life, let's be completely honest. Um, So, in... March of 1409, Charles VI gathered all his leading men and Isabeau, and he brought Charles of Orléans and his younger legitimate brothers, and then John the Fearless to a peace conference, and Isabella did go there with Mm -hmm. everyone, and John showed no remorse or guilt, and this was one of those things that um, Bourbon did not show up for at all. Mm. Um, his yeah. advocate assured the king. <laughs> yep. yes. He's like, no, no. Um, his advocate assured the king he wanted peace and for the king not to be sad. So John didn't even <sighs> speak himself at first. It was all his advocate. Mm. And then Charles agreed, as in the king agreed, mm-hmm. since he just wanted peace. Yeah. And then our Charles and his brothers were ordered to forgive John. Oh, and God. they just stood there silently. Yes. Like, didn't do anything. And remember, these are little children. Like, the mm. oldest one is a mid-teen. Yeah. And he's just like, no. He's like, nope, I'm not listening to you. Yeah, they were they were encouraged by the advocate, and John the Fearless is kind of giving them a look. And the king had to say, quote, My very dear son and you, my dear nephews, approve and accept what we have done. And what has been put before you and forgive him everything, end quote. Yeah. So, and um, Charles was, the king was referring to Charles as his son because he's his godfather. So it's a a totally normal reference. Also Um, also (laughs) father-in-law. And father-in-law. Oh my gosh, it's so weird. Yeah, that really is. Um, And they obeyed and they forgave John. Um, which is not in our hearts yes that is in fact true there was some good news yay Yay. Isabella was pregnant Um, and so they all went back to Orléans she got to say goodbye to her parents which is incredibly lucky 
And they kind of ignored the John issue for the moment because on the 13th of September, 1409, mm-hmm. Isabella gave birth to Charles's first child, Joan. Hmm. And then, like most women of that day, Isabella died. Hmm. And she was 19. And so oh. now he's a single parent to five. So before he at least had some help. Now yeah. he's got his three younger brothers um, his younger sister and a daughter, and he wasn't even 15. Damn. Which is just Crazy. amazing. And as you can imagine, he did ignore the John issue for a while. Yeah. Um, Priorities. But then, but then, John of Fairless had Charles VI, Grandmaster of the Household, executed judiciously-ish oh. in October of 1409, and it kind of slapped our Charles out of inaction. Ooh. And he began gathering troops and signed a military alliance with Count Bernard of Armagnac. Hmm. And most of the nobility avoided Paris at Christmas that year. <laughs> and so John the Fearless was, of course, alone with the king and convinced him to give John custody of the Dauphin and to forgive John for everything again. Yeah. Mm. it's So this it's is not- when the Civil War starts. <laughs> yes. Pretty much. So in April 1410, Charles, I'm going to just go with the the Duke's um, titles instead of their actual yeah. names. So Barry, yeah. Brittany, Clermont, who was the son of Bourbon, mm-hmm. along with various other nobles and Armagnac, they signed their huge alliance. And Charles agreed to marry Bonne, Armagnac's daughter. Mm. She was only 11. And they actually got married in August that year. But of mm. course, thankfully, it wasn't consummated. Yeah, And... Everyone's related. So Armagnac was Barry's son-in-law. And that means because of that, Bon is Charles's second cousin, I think. Um, so yet again, everyone's related. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, second cousin, yeah. Second cousin. And papal dispensation was, of course, received. They sent a letter to the king in September that their goal was to see him restored to his full power and dignity. Mm. That's always the... They'll blame, like, John the Fearless. They'll call him an evil counselor and things Mm. like that. It's because you can't blame the king for anything. And then they began marching towards the capital with 20,000 men, which is just Mm -hmm. a lot. And, yeah, the king, of course, ordered them to disband, and they ignored him and made it to Paris in October. And things did calm down, and a peace Mm. was signed that would last until Easter 1412, and it, it did not last that long. This is a really, like... You see why how Agincourt happened when you go through this period of French history. Yeah. Like, really, no no one could agree with each other. Yeah. yeah. So Charles, of course, still wants justice for his father being murdered. Yeah, and it's course. horrible. And he's writing notes to his uncle asking for justice. And John the Fearless would get copies of these letters since he sat on the king's council. <laughs> so Charles ended up marching on Paris again in November of 1411, and his forces at a battle in Saint-Cloud were defeated. It was, mm. like, horrible. Charles himself was fine, other than being excommunicated, <laughs> along with his forces. Well, haven't had excommunication in a while. <laughs> no. 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 Um, so everyone that died at the Battle of Saint-Cloud couldn't be buried in consecrated Aww. ground, which meant, yeah, there were some bodies sitting out for a while. Yeah, some ghosts. And oh, yeah, it's pretty horrific. And then five of his properties were given to John by the king. Oh. And really, at this point, 
Charles VI was just being led around. Like it's it's really horrible. And this actually impacted our Charles quite financially yeah. because towns are where you get your tax money from. And yeah. that's where you get a lot of your resources from. Yeah, and suddenly that's gone. So he reached out to um, Henry IV of Ooh! England. Yeah. <laughs> Riddle! Yeah, so as we know, Henry uh, has usurped the, the, the husband of Charles's first wife. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe this agreement makes sense. Like, he got a wife out of the deal. Um, so their agreement but was... he's also, she- you know, actively, actively plotting to invade France. <laughs> exactly. This is, it is, it is really <laughs> shocking. And it really shows you how this time period, like the concept of a state didn't exist Mm. as much as it yeah. does now yeah so the conversing with your king's enemy as long as you weren't directly undermining the king wasn't actually treason mm-hmm. because he wasn't going after the king he was going after john of burgundy john the fearless mm. and it's it's just really yeah. confusing from charles's um, perspective is like is like who's worse the enemy of my country or the guy who killed my dad. Yeah. You know? And apparently it's the guy who killed my dad. <laughs> As it would be, I'm sure, for most yeah. of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so their agreement was that Charles would support Henry's claim to Aquitaine, which England still badly wanted all of. And that Charles would hold Angoulême and Perigord as a vassal mm. to Henry. And the treaty was finally signed in January 1412. And Thomas... Duke of Clarence, I, he would he became the Duke of Clarence right around this time, was to lead the English troops that Charles would be getting. Yeah, and yeah. the rest of the Armagnac faction signed the treaty in May of fourteen twelve. Okay, and then the English forces set sail for France in early June. Council, including John the Fearless, found out about all of this in April. Mm-hmm. He was able to convince the king to allow him to attack Armagnac faction's holdings. Oh. And we discussed this in our earlier episode, but he headed for Bourges, mm. Barry's capital city, first. And Barry folded. <laughs> yep. Like, like me He's playing like, not my poker. castle. Not my castle. Like anything. <laughs> my library. My books. Not the library. Which I can totally understand. Dogs. I can understand that. <laughs> my dogs. <laughs> by the way, by the way, um, last episode we talked about... Um, uh, Yolande of uh, of Aragon, oh. and after Barry's death, she went in to save his books from Bourges, yeah. and she took them to her castle because Bourges was being threatened by the English. I love her um, so much. Which is She's a so hero cool. moment. That <laughs> whole family is absolutely amazing. So. Yeah. yeah, and she's going to show up again in this episode. So <laughs> she she is. I'm really excited. <laughs> um, so obviously, Charles was forced to make peace with John. And mm. so he's France is kind of okay, but Clarence was still on his way to France. And mm. it means that when he arrived, Charles needed to pay to break their treaty. Ooh. He ended up having to agree to pay 210,000 écus. And you'll have to think back, but that's about one fifth the amount France had been forced to agree to for John II. So it's a Ooh. huge amount. Oh, of God. Yeah. It's. It's huge. And he had to send hostages oh. to guarantee that. Did he send and one of the hostages he sent 
was his youngest full brother. So oh, wow. John, not the bastard. <laughs> John, yes. not the bastard. I love that title. Not John, John not the bastard. John the, John the imprisoned. <laughs> John the imprisoned legitimate child. Yes. And he had to send five other servants as hostages. And by servants, I mean his closest retainers. Um, okay. it's, it's, you know, it's not the guy that like sweeps his floors or something like that. It's someone that he actually relies on for things. I pretend be like, yeah, this guy's not the guy who sweeps the floors. <laughs> he really actually is. He's like, no, this guy who sweeps the floors is my closest attendant. That would be a fun, that would be a fun idea for like a Prince of the Poor Pope um, <laughs> kind of, uh, story. I love it. I love it. So Charles, of course, is like, well, I am really poor now, so I'm just going to sit things out for a while. Yeah, makes sense. And at this point, it's actually kind of exciting because Louis, um, Charles VI's oldest son, looks like he's going to start doing things. And yeah, he just is really unimpressive. <laughs> but <laughs> the Estates General and was then he called dies. in. <laughs> and then he dies, pretty much. Um, the Estates General was called in 1413 to discuss all the things wrong with France. And they really pulled one of those, the young people these days things. Uh, like all the problems mm-hmm. are because young people were in charge young of things. Young people have ideas. <laughs> they have ideas and they're they're young people. They have no respect these days. No, no so, respect for the elders yeah. and traditions of our time. They're spending too long on their illuminated manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> so while the meeting is going on, while they're complaining about the young people, there was a civil uprising in Paris by young encouraged people? by John the Fearless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh-huh. uh, by the butchers mainly. Yeah, so <laughs> young butchers? <laughs> young, no, maybe. It might have yeah, been so that's, it's people. all the young people's fault. We covered this with John the Fearless Eliza. This yeah. is the uprising that yeah. John the Fearless kind of the directed, couch. but kind of lost control of the yeah, Because he lost control of the young people. Yeah. Yes. And it finally, finally clued people in that John the Fearless might actually be the bad guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it clued in the king and Isabeau, so his wife and little mm-hmm. Louis. And so the University of Paris started to review John's defense and they eventually overturned it, Hmm. which is really exciting. And the king declared war on John in March 1414, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is pretty exciting. Um, And a battle started in Arras in July that year. And neither side was doing really well because John had cleared the fields in front of the castle he was staying in really well. Nice. And so heavy artillery was difficult to move. There wasn't cover. Yeah. It's it's impressive planning. Yeah, it is. Good strategy. So, yes, of course, being starved out bites. They signed the Peace of Arras uh, with the crown in September. And then Charles got to spend Christmas of 1414 in Paris with his royal family and was properly invited into the royal fold. And the court partied a little hard to the point that Henry V, now King of England, heard about this and he was appalled by the lack of morality in the court. And Henry V was a little interested in war. Henry V was a huge party pooper. (laughs) He was so much fun when he was Henry of Monmouth, and then he became Henry V. Uh, and of course, it was just not fun Second anymore. Second, bloody come king. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On Rex Factor, they call him uh, Henry Mark V. I one hundred percent agree. Because he's a robot this. when he, he becomes is. king. He's such a robot. 
Well, it's not just, he was like must the fun party France. prince, <laughs> must conquer France, must marry the princess, must have the son, must, 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 must. die a hero. <laughs> like, well, he checked all the boxes. He literally checked all the, and you know what? He is like the Achilles of today. He's remembered that way. Minus, minus the beautiful homoerotic romance. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Everyone should read the song, the song of Achilles. Uh, yeah. I need to read that actually. Brilliant book. I wept. I, I wept Ooh. at oh. the end. Oh, like, that I've sounds lovely. <laughs> I cry a lot reading these his, like history books. Like I get to someone dying. And I'm just like bawling. God, I feels like I'm oh, an emotional robot, like emotionless <laughs> robot. Not. I mean, I'm like reading it. I'm like, oh, these people died. Okay. Romance makes makes me cry. like romantic, like tragedy makes me cry. Oh, um, yeah. That's my. I don't. <laughs> no. Speaking of romantic tragedies. <laughs> yes, there are more. There back are to more. Charles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Charles was back in Orléans hanging out with his cousin Louis of Anjou Mm -hmm. and Anjou's wife Yolanda of Aragon in August of 1515. And the future Charles VII was actually hanging out with them along with his wife who was um, Louis and Yolanda's daughter. And um, Margaret of Anjou may very well have been there. It was a a proper proper party. Oh, baby Margaret of Anjou. <laughs> I know. She would have been quite little. Um, and then, yeah. yeah, in August of 1515, the siege of Harfleur began. She may not have been there. I wonder if she was born. I'll have to double Hang check. Hang on. I don't know if she was born yet. <laughs> I d- she might not. She exists. No, she was born it she was born fifteen years later. Oh, oh it's yeah, like, close. They, like sorry, they, sorry to sorry to burst your okay. They started really young. And they had so many children. Margaret of Anjou is the yes. granddaughter of your yes. Yolande, not the I was daughter. getting Renee and Louis mixed up, which does happen sometimes. I'm okay with that. <laughs> we, I was getting everyone confused. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, in August of 1515, mm-hmm. that's when the Siege of Harfleur began. So this is Henry like V attacking Hoffler. France. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's next to Hanfleur, like, did I say that right? The Hanfleur. the two cities across the bay from each other. Yeah. So the, I think have... the H's are silent. So it's yeah, I can't Arfleur say. and Onfleur. Yeah. Arfleur. Because they can't pronounce gonna... H in French. <laughs> yeah. Fleur one and Fleur two. Oh, we'll I... get back to the two. We'll get back to the two Fleurs. <laughs> yes, we will, because it will come in. Um, <laughs> so Charles rode to Rouen to meet the king, and mm-hmm. then once Harfleur fell, Henry V and his troops began marching towards Calais, mm-hmm. and the French decided to prevent him from making it there. Charles was sent with the main French forces to try to block Henry V's mm-hmm. march. And on the 25th of October, the Battle of Agincourt happened. Ooh. And I know I skipped over a bunch of that. It's okay, we've already been on kind of over it (laughs) (laughs) on your list of regency madness i think that charles is the only person on your list who's at the battle damn yes um that's yeah because armagnac's down south john the fearless uh refused to join Um, makes sense or no no he was told to stay away from the battle by the dauphin or something it's a bit of both the dauphin was told to stay away from the battle by barry who also stayed away from the battle (laughs) exactly bourbon's dead and yeah 
So, um, yeah, the French forces had been stalking Henry for days. <laughs> and they told him they'd offer him battle at a certain place. And he told them they knew where he was and could come find him. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. And they planned mm. horribly. So most of the French leadership was in the vanguard and part of the first wave to attack. And Charles himself was right next to the Duke of Alençon, who managed to take a like a chunk off of Henry's crown, but was then killed Ooh. while he was trying to surrender. Oh. And yeah. Charles was taken he, really early he, as a hostage. So Alençon uh, like kneeled over to like you know surrender, <laughs> like, and then some random soldier just comes up behind him and chops his oh head off. God. Yeah, yeah, and it's really it's so, a like horrendous ass. battle. <laughs> It's it's shocking. For the French, anyway. um, Thankfully, Charles was taken quite early, and because he was such high nobility, he was completely protected when Henry V decided to murder all his hostages. Not quite all of them, mm. but, but yeah. Um, so the, um, the Constable of France died as well, mm-hmm. and then the new Duke of Bourbon, who was previously Clermont, oh, yeah. was also taken hostage. And six up to six thousand Frenchmen died. Modern, uh, yeah, modern archaeology is saying it might have been closer to three thousand. Oh. There's a bit of a range. Mm. Yeah, in the thousands. Yeah, they always so. exaggerate these these chroniclers. <laughs> yeah, it it's it's shocking <laughs> the number of people that died. Um, it's nothing compared to like really early battles in the mm. Hundred Years' War. Um, because those were prior to the plague coming through. So the yeah. armies are actually significantly smaller at this yeah. point. But for Yeah, I have noticed that. I'm like, I'm like the, the time, numbers have gone yeah. the numbers have gone Massively. way down. Like Henry V's invasion is so much smaller than Edward's so yeah. invasion. Yeah. Um and it's because of the plague. It mm. just took out so many people. And mm. then you, when you have the plague mm. and wars, you're not able to rebuild your population. Yeah. Because <laughs> war pretty, pretty help you rebuild population. <laughs> and also the places you're invading don't have enough resources to supply exactly. such a huge force anyway. So, yeah. Yep. It's pretty depressing. Mm. I'll turn it back over to you now, Ben. Yeah, yeah. So in contrast to Charles of Orléans, who barely got to adulthood before <laughs> undergoing a civil war and then captured at the yeah. Battle of Agincourt, Bedford had a relatively chill, peaceful childhood. <laughs> yeah. uh, so his father, Henry IV, at first faced a lot of opposition to his rule. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason he never got time to invade France. Uh, but Bedford is still a small child during this time, not really involved. Mm. Um, but as Bedford grows up, he proves himself the most loyal and dedicated to his eldest brother, nice. Henry V. He's like ride or die. Oh, good. It's so big true. Big brother Henry. Um, so to get a bit further into Bedford's siblings, because they're, they're all going to be sort of relevant. Uh, not the daughters, though, because Henry IV married off his two daughters to German oh. and Scandinavian princes. So they're off Their stories uh, are else. so sad. I, they're, they're all tragic. Uh, so, so they sad. won't really be relevant uh, to this episode. But all four of his sons will be. So first of all, we've got Henry of Monmouth, future mm-hmm. Henry V. Um, so, well, yeah, we've, we've been over him. Uh, then we get the second son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, who we've already seen as a military commander as well. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I'm gonna say now Thomas is the least successful brother. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And we'll get to why. So. Um, <laughs> and then we got John, Duke of Bedford, the third son, um, sort of the responsible middle child, I guess. And then we've mm. got Humphrey, Duke of uh, Gloucester, who's like dance, the dance, cheeky, dance, mischievous dance. youngest brother who gets away with way too much. 
Uh, I love opinion. Humphrey. I love Humphrey. <laughs> he's yeah, he's he's fun. Um mm-hmm. but not in a way that necessarily is good for England. No, so not even in, slightly. <laughs> it, but it's great, it's great for France, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in his early career, which means mid-teens, mm-hmm. of course, um yeah. <laughs> uh, Bedford was given a command up in Scotland, because that's what you do yeah. with your 15-year-old son. Uh so around 14. 14- 04, he was named Warden of the East March, which is a cool title. Yeah, that really is. Um, oh. And he showed up early, which basically means Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he showed early promise, helping the northern uh, English lords fend off Scottish attacks. Then in 1413, upon the death of his father, he was recalled to the English court and his brother, the new king, gave him his big title, Duke of Bedford. Oh. Bedford is at the War Council where Henry V is planning his invasion of France. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's about 22 at this point. And Bedford was actually appointed as regent while the other brothers went off to France. So he's clearly very trusted. Um, It's a really big role, actually. It really is, yeah. If you think of everything Henry IV went through and what happened right before they left with an almost overthrow, Mm -hmm. it's huge. Yeah. This this did mean that Bedford... um, Missed out on the glorious Agincourt campaign. But uh, Bedford's chance to prove his worth uh, militarily came the following spring in 1416, when Henry appointed Bedford to oversee the assembly of a new fleet at Southampton uh, to reassert England's control over the Channel and bring reinforcements to Arfleur into, into Normandy. So Bedford's departure was delayed by an enemy blockade, uh, but uh, because by this time, mm-hmm. you know, the French and the Scots as well have all these like mercenary fleets <laughs> in the English Channel that are kind of like just causing <laughs> causing chaos, um, as only the French and the Scots together can do. Um, <laughs> so so Bedford is delayed by that. But in mid August, he sailed across the Channel to the mouth of the Seine, and he was, which is where Arfleur mm. and Enfleur are. So Arfleur is on one side of the mouth of the Seine, yes. and Enfleur is on the other. And Enfleur mm. is still French, and Arfleur is English. Hopefully that wasn't confusing. So Bedford was sailing to uh, Arfleur, of course, um, but the French send out uh, a fleet from Enfleur to try to block him, but the wind was behind yeah. the English. So Bedford's ships, are he orders his ships to just charge full steam ahead, and they can build a lot more, ste- uh, more mm. speed than the French ships. And as they're doing this, they're hurling their arrows from their longbows and their ballistas as well, which are basically like giant crossbows and also cannon fire as well. There's some (laughs) cannon fire. And they basically ran their way through the French lines. And the English then drew up alongside the enemy ships to board them um, with the object of kind of commandeering the enemy vessels by killing, you know, killing them, shoving them into the water, that sort of thing. And with this bold and perhaps reckless attack, the English suffered heavy losses uh, in the face of uh, the enormous Genoese carracks that the French had hired. By the way, they've also got Italian Mm. ships as well, um, because the French Mm. can't do boats. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But the English persevered. They ended up forcing the French to retreat back to Enfleur, clearing the way for Bedford's reinforcements to reach Mm. Normandy and support Henry's occupation. Because by this point... We're not doing chevauchés. The English are not doing chevauchés into France, uh, just burning everything. Mm. They are trying to occupy and, you know, systematically conquer France. So that's Mm. Bedford's uh, 
a very um, exciting, dramatic entry into France. It's interesting how they were sending colonists over and things like that. Like, it's a reverse Norman conquest. (laughs) It's really interesting, yeah, especially, Mm. yeah, considering what happened 400 years before. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So, while all this excitement is going on, Charles has been taken back to England. Um, after Ashley we've swapped Morton, places, and the, <laughs> I just yeah, tried. pretty much. <laughs> he and the surviving hostages were marched to Calais and taken back to England. And while he was marching to Calais, Henry V came up to him and bragged about how obviously the French lost because God's grace wasn't on them. Yeah, and like, <laughs> Henry V has no tact, like personal tact whatsoever. I find every like he really is a robot. So. Yeah, it's quite different to when the the Black Prince uh, captured John the Second. John the Second, um, yeah. Where the Black Prince is like very chivalrous and he's like entertaining them at his feast, that sort of thing. And Henry's just like, "You lost." <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, and even though he and his younger brother John are now in the same country, they don't actually see each other until the very end of Charles's stay. And it's a very long time away. Guess they don't want them plotting. It's it's so long. Um, So you'd expect Charles is is quite important. So after the king and his three sons, Charles is next. And not long after this, it's the king and his two sons. And then very quickly after that, it's the king and Mm. his son. (laughs) (laughs) That means Mm. (laughs) poor Charles VI just goes through sons quite quickly. Um, and then he decides he doesn't have a son because his yeah, son murders John the Fearless. It's pretty sad. <laughs> it really is. Not the killing the John the Fearless part. That's pretty. That's pretty great. Yay! <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so it took actually years before a um, a ransom for him was discussed. Like no one would even talk oh. about it. He was allowed to bring over his servants to manage his affairs. Mm. And his legitimate brother, Philip, the only one that was left in France, took over control of their cause and all the holdings until he died in 1420 at 24. And at this point, the bastard took over and he smashed it. Ah. He is absolutely amazing. He became a deeply respected military leader who, along with Joan of Arc, protected Orléans from the English forces. So he is one of Joan of Arc's companions, basically. Mm, Nice. Um, and you know, so over in France, thankfully they're doing stuff because if it weren't for, for him supporting her, it wasn't going to work out well for France in the end. Um, and militarily he had the forces and the power to do that. And then, uh, in England, Charles was, he's writing poetry. (laughs) (laughs) When imprisoned. Exactly. There's not much else you can do. He was moved around between various nobles' houses. Um, and at one point, he stayed in Pontefract Castle, which is absolutely hmm. horrible when you consider that his first mm. wife's husband, Richard II, died there. And she likely mm. obviously told Charles about this. So it's just, it's mm. quite mean, I think. Who's um, probably and his... ghost <laughs> I know. It's like, and you stole my wife. <laughs> it is a very haunted castle. Um, 
like it's not my fault you were murdered <laughs> most likely most likely murdered yeah and his best day though was with william de la pole and at the time de la pole was the earl of suffolk um and mm-hmm. he will come up william de la pole will come up a lot in your next few episodes i think as well mm. um and then when henry the fifth be a party like a fun guy oh uh, no he's important in like the the ending negotiations of the yeah yeah yeah. Partly because of certain friends that are made during this imprisonment. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> they're going to be very linked for a while. Um, and then when Henry V died, the regents of Henry VI made Charles start paying for his own upkeep. So he's paying for oh. his own upkeep and he's trying to pay for his hostage. Yeah. His, his brother's hostage. ransom. Oh my God. And his other brother back in France is trying to, you know, keep France out of the hands of the English at the same Together. time. So it's just this, like, really unfair situation. Um, yeah. And then, of course, hot in late September 1419, Charles received news that young Charles, the future Charles VII, had allegedly, allegedly arranged the murder of John the Fearless. And he was, and he was like, "Yay!" No, no, you'd think so, but he was actually worried for France because he thought it would be destabilizing. Um, And Um, on my show, I was really happy about John being killed off. Like, I was like, and there, there are some characters when you do history shows, you have to kill off quite a few times because they come into various different people's stories. And you're normally like, and then yeah. they died. Sorry, I'm telling you this for mm. the third time. But with yeah, John yeah. the Fearless, I got to kill him off like five times. You're like, yes. Every single time I was really yeah. happy. <laughs> like, but it's such, guys- a, it's, it's such a significant death because, of it, you know, mm. because it's, it is basically creating a cycle of violence. Yes. So now John the Fearless's son, Philip the Bold, uh, Philip, no, not Philip the Bold, Philip, Philip the, the Good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> this is what tips him tips the Burgundians over to being fully on the English side. Yes. Now for the next few years. True, true. Um, now I did want to mention quickly about Philip the Good, actually. Um, so he's going to marry a woman named Isabella of Portugal in 1430. And she Ooh. is actually a Lancastrian. So her mother was Philippa of Lancaster, John of Gaunt's oldest daughter. Oh. Um, but she is an amazing woman and she will actually be instrumental in Charles's freedom. So keep, keep an ear out for her. I'm a big fan of hers. All right. So getting back to Bedford, um, what's he doing? So, so despite his glorious naval victory at Arfleur, Bedford continued to sort of take a backseat in the war because whenever Henry had to go to France himself, usually at the most exciting parts of the war, He needed Bedford, his most trusted (laughs) brother, to stay back in England as his regent. So Bedford was absent for the Treaty of Troyes when Henry V married Catherine of Valois and essentially became the heir. But he did come back to France again in 1421 to join Henry in subduing the French holdouts around Paris. So there's like a bunch of castles around Paris that are just basically going back and forth between um, Burgundians, English, and Armagnacs, or the Dauphinists, as, as I suppose we should call them now. Um, so at this point, England was allied with Burgundy, of course, um, and Charles VI was sort of under their thumb. And so was Queen Isabeau, who's basically just rotting in prison. It's really terrible. Yeah. Um, 
But the Loire Valley and the south of France was still mainly, well, the southeast of France, I guess. The southwest of France is English. But the Loire Valley and the southeast of France are still in the Armagnac camp. Um, Mainly because uh, Yolande of Aragon, her husband, controlled most of that. Yes. She's she's so amazing. Because they they essentially ruled Mm -hmm. the Loire Valley and Provence as well. Um, Yes. And the Dauphin, despite being disowned by his mother, Queen Isabeau, and excluded from the French succession, according to the treaty that was made by the English and the Guardians, <laughs> uh, he still commanded uh, a lot of loyalty and was recognized as the true heir to yeah. France by allies throughout Europe. I find him quite interesting because he usually had to be convinced to go to meetings and stuff like that, and not oh. just like go right away yeah. to one of his castles. <laughs> So I, when I started my research, I had a pretty neutral opinion of King Charles VII of France. But I, the more I read about him, the more I despise this man. He's, he's really overrated. <laughs> who is, he's so overrated. Who is supposedly the great victor of the Hundred Years War. But we'll, we'll get into that, obviously, in plenty of detail in this episode. Charles V. Um, Charles V. Charles V is the, is the best king of the Hundred Years War. We've yep. proven that beyond a doubt. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, so England by this point controls Paris yes. which is a big yes. win um, I mean kind of they only control it because the Burgundians control it it's very complicated yeah. but basically England yeah. is in Paris but the key to, und- to undoing the Dauphin's central power base will be the taking of Orléans the second city of mm. France located directly mm-hmm. south of Paris in the Upper yep. Loire Valley and Charles's city. Um, <laughs> Charles, though, so, is a hostage. Yeah. So while he and Bedford were busy around Paris, Henry V sent Clarence to carve an English path to the Loire. Now, interestingly, Bedford mm. and a lot of other advisors said, don't do this. Don't. Like, <laughs> they, they, they advised other um, targets instead of Orléans, because Orléans is mm. a big freaking city that's yeah, very yeah. well fortified and it's just very hard to besiege especially if you have yeah. an inferior english force which the english yes. always tend to have an inferior force yeah um I'm trying, because, i think it has right. six gates as well so it's quite <laughs> difficult to yeah, surround huge it's on a river yeah that, and, that's yeah, yeah. huge um and we'll get we will get into details about the siege of Orleans in Joan of yes. arc's episode um, oh, looking forward for, to that for reasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so while he, uh, so so in the uh, Battle of Bourget, which happens like on basically the road to Orleans, um, <laughs> Clarence found and attacked a French force, he, and he was sort of emboldened by the a recent run of English victories. But he didn't count on another nearby force of Scotsmen, led by the Earl huh. of Douglas to come charging in to aid their French allies. And then Clarence found himself surrounded and killed in this battle. Damn. So with Clarence... Don't underestimate Scott. Now here's the real, the most, one of the most interesting parts of Bedford's life, because Mm. with Clarence dead, with Clarence dead, Bedford actually came very close to becoming King of England. So were it not for Henry's new wife, Catherine of Valois, successfully giving birth to a son two months after Clarence's death, in May 1421, Bedford might have become King John II of England the following year, uh, okay. when Henry V fell ill and died at the Siege of Melun on the 31st of August 1422. Um, 
Mm. But he didn't. <laughs> he mm. was the he was kind of the heir for like two months, but unfortunately, <laughs> baby was born. Um, on his deathbed, Henry V entrusted both his remaining brothers, so Bedford and Gloucester, as the regents mm. for his one-year-old son, now King Henry VI. Bedford would govern Henry's French conquest, while Gloucester governed England. In theory, mm. we'll get to <laughs> how this may change. Um, <laughs> So Henry V, he didn't manage to become king of France, uh, thank God, uh, despite becoming <laughs> the new heir to Charles VI, because ironically, Charles VI had d- died just seven weeks after Henry on the 21st of October, 1422. So fascinatingly, not one French prince or princess, not even the queen, was in attendance at the beloved French king's funeral in Paris. <laughs> So the queen, she was basically afraid to show her face because the people hated her as much as they loved the king. It's so sad. And all of all of the you know, the Duke of Burgundy's away, all of the other French princes are alienated from the crown. So the Duke of Bedford ended up being the only official mourner at the King of France's funeral. Oh, that's so sad. He's there. Yeah. Um now as far as the English and Burgundians are concerned, baby Henry the (laughs) Sixth. Um, who at this point is in England with his mother, is now the King of England and France. And uh, in France, he would technically be Henry II, because we've only had one Henry in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the French very very pointedly later on get themselves another King Henry and call him Henry II. They're like, he's definitely Henry II. <laughs> <laughs> there was no... This Henry does not exist. Um, and the fact that the Anglo-Burgundian alliance controls not just Paris now, but also two-thirds of the rest of France, makes this more or less a fact. Meanwhile, the Dauphin, Charles VII, is derided as the King of Bourges, is what he's called. <laughs> um, Bourges being his capital at this time. So while regent in France, Bedford pr- proved himself a good administrator and actually a really good uncle to his nephew, Henry VI. Mm. He took his job as Lord Protector very seriously, in contrast to his brother Humphrey, <laughs> Gloucester, who was kind of being the worst back in England. So, meanwhile, England uh, wins further victories. They crush the French army and they completely finish off the Scottish contingent at the Battle of Verneuil. And mm. things were going pretty well for England in, uh, uh, in France. And it looks like the Dauphin's cause was doomed. It even looked like at one point that he would flee to Scotland and yep. like just be an exiled king okay. or something like that. Um, but then in 1428, a wild Joan of Arc appears. Uh, <laughs> Yay! And um, <laughs> made it sound like a wild when you're like wild Joan. Made me think of like a, finding a wild vegetable. <laughs> yeah. Although I'll I'll so um la- later this later uh, this week that we record this, oh, this would already have happened by the time this episode comes out. I'll be talking at the Intelligent Speech uh, conference about how. Joan of Arc's appearance is not random. It's actually an elaborate conspiracy by the Anjou family. But that's... Seriously? So now we'll go Uh, to Wild Vegetable. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really really fun story. Um, Oh my gosh. uh, I have a ticket already. I'm really excited. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Um, Oh yeah, I kickstarted it. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. So in part, thanks to Joan's morale boost, uh, she helps the Dauphin supporters lift the Siege of Orléans before carving a path to his coronation at Rance. Um, Yeah. 
So the Dauphin is now King Charles VII. He's been crowned at Rams. And with the coronation completed by the anointed Archbishop of Rams, who had been exiled uh, as like a Dauphinist supporter, the tide suddenly turned. So the people of France now saw Charles VII as the anointed king. And England, having not predict- predicted that the French would march on Rams, because it was a bit out of left field. Um, it's quite out they of had the way. Missed... It's quite out of the way. And actually... Everyone was like, no one even thought of, of going to Rance until Joan came in. And then she was like, we're going to Rance. And people were like, no, but Joan, it's really hard to, we're going to Rance. We're going to Rance. And she like, kept saying it over <laughs> like, and over okay, again. Fine. Um, and people just were like, okay, I guess we're going to Rance. Um, so they do. Um, which is, Rance is like surrounded by Burgundian, by the Champagne lands, which mm. the Burgundians control. Um, so... I suppose that this whole idea of like, you know, doing the thing that they'd least expect. And it's the most effective thing they could possibly have mm. done. It's a really smart decision. Good strategy. Because England had now missed its chance to crown Henry VI at Rams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what really turns the tide. So in a rather feeble attempt to reverse the situation, Bedford called for 10-year-old Henry VI to be sent to France for his own little coronation. Um so on the 16th of December, 1431, Henry VI crowned as King of France at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Which, you know, impressive cathedral, but not Rams. Um, mm. Not the place it's meant to be. And also, to add to the improperness of this coronation, he was also crowned by his great uncle, the Cardinal Bishop of Winchester, who had also mm. crowned him as King of England two years before. And this was obviously a bid to give legitimacy to the English claim on France, you know, being crowned by a cardinal, that kind of thing. Mm. But this is undermined by the fact that he was crowned not only by the wrong church, also by the wrong bishop. And also the Bishop of Paris was visibly enraged throughout the ceremony. (laughs) Because not only did Winchester get to crown the king, but he also got to say mass in the Bishop of Paris's church. Um, And he didn't delegate any part of the ceremony to any of the French bishops. This is like a purely English-run ceremony. So, I wonder why they didn't acknowledge him. Yeah, so the French yeah. in Paris are unimpressed by this coronation. <laughs> but but the Par- Parisians are still on the Burgundian side, so they'll do what the Duke of Burgundy wants to do. So Joan of Arc, by the way, has at this point been executed. Again, mm. she doesn't last very long. Um, no. Although her episode will be hours long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, she's executed by the order of Bedford's ally, the Bishop of Beauvais in Normandy. And again, she's really just a flash in the pan. But for Bedford, who re- who referred to her in a scathing letter to Charles VII as, quote, the disordered woman, um, <laughs> Joan was just as dangerous dead as she had been alive, because now she, of course, is a martyr to the French <laughs> resistance. Mm. So in this period, we really see Bedford struggling in the face of increased victories for Charles VII, both moral and mil- military. That's like great PR on the French Great part, PR. I mean, it is and it isn't, because on the one hand, she was executed for heresy by the church. So mm. it, it does take a lot to sort of kind of rehabilitate her. But I yeah. think for many of the common people of France who already saw her as a saint, it doesn't really matter. Yes. It's more about convincing, you know, the upper classes that she's legit. Mm. That eventually does happen. And although she doesn't get made a saint until the 1920s, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so, in the, so in this period, uh, we really see Bedford struggling, increasing victories for Charles VII. Um, 
In addition to losing the ground to Joan of Arc and her compatriots, Bedford also had to return to England periodically because Gloucester kept screwing <laughs> things up. For instance... <laughs> In 1428, Gloucester annulled his marriage to Jacqueline of Ainort, a Burgundian uh, kinswoman, in order to marry his mistress, Eleanor Cobham, who, by the way, later ended up getting accused of witchcraft, along with Gloucester. So that's not a great look. So Bedford keeps having to go back and forth between England and France to solve problems. Um, Bedford is like the, of the family, he's kind of like the people pleaser who yes. like has to smooth everything over when things go wrong? Um, he's that. Uh, he's that member of the family, and the family is is dwindling. It's now just the two brothers. <laughs> it really is. So Bedford's struggle to maintain his hold over France turned into like a sharp downward spiral as the alliance between England and Burgundy broke down completely in the 1430s. So not only do we have the annulled marriage between Gloucester and his Burgundian wife, but we've also mm. got in November. 1432 bedford's wife who hasn't haven't mentioned yet but but she's yeah she's cool uh (laughs) anne of burgundy the sister of philip the good she dies and the couple had no children so this completely severed bedford's familial ties to the burgundians they're now not related in any sense apart from being distant cousins but everyone's distant cousins so, so meanwhile, Burgundian lawyers, uh, like there's there's one called Nicolas Rollin, Burgundian lawyers are starting to find loopholes in the treaties that are uh, in support of England that the Duke of Burgundy signed, mm. um, which is quite fun. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the Burgundians also, they have all of the scholars of the University of Paris on their side. So they are constantly <laughs> nice. just running legal circles around their enemies. It's how they managed to disown the Dauphin. Um, and it's now how they're going to, get out of the English alliance, which is quite fun. Um, so in the words of modern historian Robert Necht, Charles VI had recognised Henry V as heir presumptive following his marriage to Catherine of France, but as Henry had predeceased his father-in-law, he had never acquired the French crown and therefore could not bequeath it. So they're basically saying, the fact that Henry V was designated as heir doesn't automatically mean that Henry VI is now the heir to France. Oh. Yeah, they're like, basically mm, the fact that Henry V died legal. nullifies that whole treaty. The French like this legal argument, mm. actually. It it will come up again in a few, uh, more than a century and a half's time for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah. going to tell you which king it comes up for, but it's it's quite an interesting argument, actually. The French basically just like whatever's working for them at the time is what they go with. It doesn't matter. What <laughs> yeah. it, does. it, it doesn't matter what happened before. It's like, yeah. um, we will do it this way. It happened with the Salic Law thing. It's like this was never yeah. a rule before. We're just making it a rule because we don't want this particular princess to become queen. Pretty um, much. Yeah. So meanwhile, Philip the Good was also putting out feelers to Charles the Seventh of France. And the wheels of reconciliation were very much being greased by Yolande of Aragon, mm. who's basically just trying to convince mm. Charles VII to say sorry for killing Philip's dad. Um, <laughs> the Duke of Burgundy ended up deciding that he was better off siding with Charles VII and making him like indebted to him and gaining power through him, mm-hmm. rather than competing with That's Bedford up. for control of France. Interestingly, this is probably because Burgundy saw Bedford as more competent and therefore yes. <laughs> more of a rival. 
than Charles II. Uh, not about it's it actually until... kind of a point in Bedford's favour, but, it, but yeah. obviously it doesn't end well. So Philip initiated the Congress of Arras in the summer of 1435, which was attended by lords from both England and France, as well as the lawyers of the University of Paris, who's always, always meddling <laughs> in things. Um, and at Arras, the English delegation, led by Cardinal Beaufort, uh, the guy who'd <laughs> crowned Henry VI, and a son of John, John of Gaunt as well, yes. um, he demanded that Charles VII do homage to Henry VI for the lands he'd <laughs> occupied in France. Um, the French responded that Henry VI should, should do the opposite, <laughs> also that the English should totally evacuate France and renounce the crown. <laughs> Um, and yeah. this whole time the Burgundians are just sitting there, like, smiling. <laughs> <laughs> so the English representative, Cardinal Beaufort, storms off in a huff on the 1st of September and leaves the French and the Burgundians to negotiate a peace between each other. Um, <laughs> now, Bedford isn't in attendance at this com- Congress, probably partly because he was not well. Yeah. Um, mm. So two weeks after Arras... Bedford died on the 14th of September, 1435, in Rouen, Normandy. And he actually dies just a few days after Queen Isabeau in Paris. Um, So as Bedford had no legitimate children, he actually left one of his castles to his bastard son, Richard. And the rest of his personal possessions Mm. went to his uh, young new wife, Jaquetta of Luxembourg, who may (gasps) ring some bells. (sighs) She's yeah. fearless. So Jaquetta, <laughs> uh, he married her the year Great after name. Anne's uh, death. And uh, she was young. Uh, she was very young. Uh, she was like 17 when she married <sighs> this old man, Bedford. Um, but now she's she's a young widow. She's extremely rich. And she was therefore the most sought uh-huh. after of all the brides in <laughs> Europe. But she followed her heart. Yeah. She followed her heart. And she went oh. to England and secretly married one of Bedford's knights, Richard Woodville. <laughs> ah! Yeah. And despite the scandal, the, the couple were extremely happy and they had 14 yeah. children. Yeah. Uh, most of them daughters. Um, but they mm-hmm. didn't remain out of the political spotlight. Jaquetta's eldest child, Elizabeth Woodville, ended up also yes. marrying for love. But in her case, marrying the King of England, Edward the sixth of York, Ooh. who had just opposed <laughs> his cousin Henry the sixth of Lancaster, but we are not opening up that Wars of the Roses <laughs> kind of worms, not today. <laughs> no, yeah. but that's that's interesting. Like uh, Bedford's, yeah, Bedford's, the connections. Um, wife ends up living a, a whole second life in England, have, and being a happy life, yeah, and therefore an ancestor of the Tudors as well. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So on the twentieth of September. Um, the Congress of Arras concluded with Philip the Good of Burgundy agreeing to abandon the English cause and side with France, provided that Charles VII do penance for his involvement <laughs> in the murder of John the Fearless. And we'll oh get to that gosh. in his episode. But meanwhile, <laughs> with Gloucester on a path to <laughs> disgrace, uh, Henry VI's court is presided over by a very toxic and contentious Regency Council, which, where have we seen that before? Uh, which helps France on their slow march to victory. But again, it's going to be a, a while until victory is actually declared in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, but now we have to go back to Orléans, who this whole time has been in prison. 
Yep. He's he is, still in England. He's still in England. <laughs> still in England. I should probably cover like the major deaths that happen while he's there because I think that's important. Yeah. Um so his yeah, his is. daughter Joan died in May of 1432 Aww. at 22. It's it's really sad actually. She mm-hmm. apparently every source every note I can find about her is that she was a really lovely person and she and her husband who Aww. was John the 2nd of Alençon, so the son of the Alençon who had been killed at Agincourt. Um they had a really lovely marriage yeah. but they never had any children. Mm-hmm. Um and Charles oh. is actually really close. And to... Joan probably had like seven fingers or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's probably very a good thing because they were related as well. Yeah. So, um, and yeah. Alençon and Charles remain really close for the, the rest of Charles's life. Um, and that Alençon is actually, he'll come up in your Joan of Arc episode because he is incredibly yes. close to Joan as well. Um, Joan uh, calls him the fair duke because he was very yeah. handsome well and he has a few things to say about her as well so <laughs> um, they're really nice things they're really nice things um, and then Charles's second wife Bonn died in 1435 and her death is particularly devastating and it appears that they may never have consummated their marriage I mean she was like a, a child and then he got captured in battle. Yeah, pretty oh, yeah, much. So true. I'm really glad yeah. they didn't do that. And she was yeah, only it's kinda good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Please stop consummating marriages mm-hmm. with children looking at people who did that. Yes. But um, they had a long distance relationship. Yeah, they did write to each other a lot because that's all you do in these days is you oh. write a lot like of pen letters. pals. Um, and so she was 36. Child, child bride pen pal. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. <laughs> and he had a few false starts on gaining his freedom. And I won't go through them all because there are just so many of them. But finally, in November of 1437, in anticipation of him leaving, Henry VI arranged a meeting between him and his baby brother, John. They hadn't seen each other oh. for 25 oh. years. And when they left, John was 12, and now he was 38 years old. And I I just, I can't even imagine. Imagine them crying. uh, The writing about it made me cry, actually. I did properly cry over this bit. Um, And that that was one of the many false starts. (laughs) Um, And he actually got really close to French soil in June of 1439, when he was sent to Calais to assist with negotiations. And he was actually meant to go into France, but there were some threats um, from some Mm. Flemish and Picardy agents that they'd rescue him. And so he wasn't allowed to go onto French soil. He had to stay in Calais, but he got to see the bastard. Um, who had been given safe conduct to come into Calais. And the bastard had been 11 when Charles was taken hostage. And now he was just one of the leading men of France, which is just amazing. Yeah, Charles VII will reward him quite well. Hmm. And then these negotiations failed, but Charles also met Isabella of Portugal, who I said would come up again. Um, And she was actually handling Hmm. the Burgundian factions portion of these negotiations. Which is quite impressive. The fact that Philip the Good sent his wife to go deal with this shows you what kind of woman she was. Like he trusted her that mm. much. And then he returns to England. I mean, the after Burgundian the... women are doing a lot of the legwork in a lot they, of they they are nice. fierce. <laughs> mm. They're so impressive. Um, 
<clears throat> so he returns to England after these failed talks and then found out he's going to be released. <laughs> so on the 3rd of November, 1440, Charles was formally granted his freedom and he had to pay a huge ransom. Numbers God. literally don't matter at this point. It, they don't convert well. Uh, that is and 25 years. It's 25 years. Yeah. It's, oh it's God. horrible. Um, really and is. then he was also tasked with securing peace between England and France within a year of his release. So of course. No pressure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no pressure. Just, yeah. no pressure. Now you're back. Here's a bunch of paperwork. Uh, <laughs> it's like bureaucracy. It's really up piled there. up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's shocking. <laughs> so he sails to Gravelines. I probably said that wrong. Gravelines. And he met no, the bastard no, there. Yeah. And um, yep. he he was welcomed by Philip the Good of Burgundy and Isabella. And it had been 25 years since Charles had seen Philip. So like the whole time he was in England. Yeah. Um, and they're actually really close in age. Um, I want to say they're th three or four years apart. And they actually die quite close to each other as well. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. And Philip had actually been basically the one who had like successfully dealt with the funding for Charles's release. So he had fronted a lot yeah. of the money. Which is and, so and... ironic considering <laughs> the, the Orleans and the Burgundians started the whole civil war and now they're the ones doing gonna, all yeah. the work for peace. Oh, it's it's great. So I guess it sort of makes up for it. Yeah. It does. It does. Yeah. And they actually uh, get it, along I mean, quite well. I'm not sure if it does, but... <laughs> I know. I'm like... Yeah, not for the ones who... People who die. Yeah, I don't think the dads are too happy about this. So, um... But I'm sure... I'm sure Philip the Good, as much as he, you know, wants uh, Charles VII to do penance for killing his dad, yeah. he also probably feels mm. bad about his dad killing Charles's dad. I get that feeling. That was a confusing reading. sentence because there's two biblical Charles, but <laughs> I get that feeling reading some of the um the things about mm. what Philip the Good did prior to Agincourt. Like he had to actually be locked up to stop him from going. Um yeah. and he seems to have like cared for his father, but understood the man that his father was, if that makes sense at all. Basically he yeah. uh, he earned his epithet. He really did. He but also, really it's did. not hard to be the good one out of the, <laughs> the Dukes that. of Burgundy. <laughs> I know. You look at the I'm four the of them and you're like, bunch. yep, you are definitely yep, the good he's one. The good. Um, so they, of course, <laughs> Philip and Isabella, like, really like Charles, actually. It's really sweet. And they wanted him to marry someone within their yeah. sphere. Um, and papal dispensation yeah. had been applied for early, so no one was surprised. Yeah. On the 26th of oh, okay. November... Just days after he arrived, he married Marie of Cleves, who was um, 14. Hmm. He was four How old 46. was he? 46. Ugh. Yeah. They're not, um, they keep doing it and they're not going to stop. <laughs> I know. They're really not. Um, and she apparently, she is amazing. Um, and Philip paid for the entire wedding and he provided Marie's dowry. So she's oh. one of his nieces, like a great niece or something like yeah. that. It's... There are a lot of Burgundians. <laughs> um, you say Cleves, like one of Cleves. Yeah, it's one of his sister's daughters, I think. I think it's the same Cleves. Yeah, it is the same Cleves. Yeah, the Sorry. Same, yeah. Cleves. same house. Yeah. So she's a great, just, great, great you know, aunt. A hundred years. Yeah, a yeah, hundred yeah. years before. Nice. Um, so 
Uh, he also, also. I think there's another. There's another. Uh, she's called Marie de Cleve. There's like another Cleves, yes. but she's from like the French side of the Cleveses because there's like a French side and a German yes. side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who she will be in our Royal Mistress series. Oh um, yes, oh. exciting! But she's again another hundred years in the future. Yes, <laughs> it's Marie. It's like the Isabellas. Marie is one of those really common names mm. in this period and name. throughout yeah. all of history. And if you're in the same family, <laughs> you're likely to have a similar name to someone else in your family because they it's just so reuse true. the names. Yeah. Recy- it's recycling, you know. Yeah, it's just recycling. Mm. Yeah. It saves, em- like, it saves why energy. I think when we already have a list. <laughs> <laughs> it saves paperwork probably because you just you have the same signature and <laughs> yeah, learn how to write it properly. Yeah, but it's annoying when you have the same initials like me and my brother oh. when we we're trying to decide signatures because oh. he got to go with E Summers and I couldn't. Oh, so during this meeting, during all the wedding festivities, Charles was inducted into the Order of the Golden Fleece, the Burgundian Order of Chivalry, and right after the ceremony, mm-hmm. Charles inducted Philip into his order, the Order of the Cameo. Cameo. Um, like it's a, a porcupine. Um, and it's really funny because Charles oh, apparently nice. literally just pulled the emblem out of his pocket and just like shoved it on Philip <laughs> before he could say anything about it. Philip had done this like huge like, damn, ceremony. Danny, you can't say no. And Charles was like, here you go, mate. <laughs> like, when I, when I was uh, when I was last in France, I now get to say that it's it's very good. Yes. When I was last in France, I went to a castle that was owned by. Charles's grandson, who may get an episode, we'll see. Uh, but there's a massive porcupine over the fireplace, like a massive um, oh, wow. carved uh, porcupine. And I didn't know Europe had porcupines. Yes. Yeah, no, Europe has. Where... Uh, You're thinking of echidnas, Eliza. Yeah, those are. No, I'm not. I'm thinking of hedgehogs. Those oh, are very right. European. No, yeah, Europe has yeah. porcupines. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I knew America. Doesn't America have Pokemon? Yes. I, yeah. yeah. We do. I yes. don't think you find them in that. England, though. I think England is just hedge- hedgehogs. Yeah, England probably but I think porcupines exist in Europe. They do. Yeah, England is, is yeah. now um, <laughs> ecologically very boring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they have beavers again. They have beavers Yay. again. Yeah, that's because they're trying to make it more exciting. <laughs> I know, but they brought back the beavers. They need to get some wolves. Some big big deer back. They did. Some bears. They need bears in Scotland. We have bears. We we don't. I live in Australia, so we definitely don't here. (laughs) I know people are surprised when Uh, I tell them Australia does not have bears because they just assume we all have dangerous animals. We do have drop bears. Ben, do not insult us (laughs) with that term. (laughs) Something tourists really need to watch out for. Be careful, guys. Seriously. Be careful, listeners, when you go to Australia. Those drop bears. People will make you think uh, they don't exist. I hate that they do. term. <laughs> mm. When um, you least suspect. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Yes. So Philip had been struggling with um, some disloyalty with his city leaders in Bruges. Mm. So not Bourges, but Bruges. Um, and the city leaders had actually asked Charles if he would come help settle the differences. And so this whole party went to go to Bruges to take care of things for, for Philip. 
Um, so, so uh, you know, there's probably someone that's been missing from this conversation because Charles hasn't gone to go visit the king of France yet. Mm. So he didn't even get to Paris until the 14th of January, 1441. So more than a month and a half after he arrived back in France. Oh, that's not as bad. I thought you got his like a year. Yeah, but still, he didn't like, didn't bother going and seeing the king right away. And he had been traveling from Bruges and his retinue had grown from like, you know, the Burgundian retinue to like more than a hundred people, like hundreds of followers, possibly up to a thousand people. I'm going to justify it if he's finally back in yeah. France after <laughs> oh, and he's, bloody over 20 years. He's insanely popular. I'm, I'm going to justify it with no one likes Charles VII, so... No one likes... <laughs> I Yeah, and we're about to see why. Because Charles VII asked him to come to the palace alone, completely unattended. <gasps> and this is really oh, weird. So, so That's not a good sign. These people never travel alone. So they can meet alone after a public meeting, but they then like go into a separate room and talk and people are still yeah. like outside of the room, but they're never properly alone. Um, and he's also yeah, at this sucks. point, like the fourth man in the kingdom. So the king and his two sons, and then it's Charles. So this is yeah. asking one of the most important people to do something that's counter to everything that they've ever been taught in life. Um, and so they yeah, didn't meet. Sus. They didn't meet at all. Oh. Um, and so he and that yeah, he and his wife went to Orléans and they reached it on the 24th of January. So it took them 10 days to get there. Um, and it was just a huge party. Everything is a huge party. People are like yeah. throwing coin purses at them and, yeah, it's it's just a lot. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then not long after. I, like I would do that too. Yeah. Just <laughs> chuck money at them, rich, already really rich people. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I meant like have a huge party because I'm like back after so long. Yes. Like, remember me? You guys all thought I'd probably die over there. Yep. Well, on sounds like oh, it was a really nice place to live, like aside from when it got besieged. But it sounds yeah. so much better than Paris. It really does. Based on right next to learned. a river with like nature around you. Based on his childhood, it sounds, and, it sounds great. Yeah, and looking at pictures of what it was mm. meant to look like, it's beautiful, a beautiful yeah. city. I want to go. Well, you, your next trip to Paris, you can do that. I went to Blois, though. Blois is quite nice. It's like a little yes. sleepy city. Mm, I like a sleepy city. And Tour was interesting. Tour, unfortunately, a lot of it got destroyed during the war. So yeah. Yeah, it wasn't very medieval, but I did see the ruins of the Abbey of St. Martin, which was interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I'll stop doing asides from when I'm going to defense. I want to go tourist Bye, asides. Um, so they then have to travel <laughs> to meet with all of the sons, basically, of the men that were at Agincourt with Charles. So Alinson, his oh, yeah. son-in-law, former son-in-law. Uh, like, Brittany, the yeah. new bourbon, and they all, Bobon, they all agree to an alliance, um, just like a mutual protection pact. Mm, nice. They aren't going after the king or anything like that. Um, but they also begin making overtures mm. with England to begin sorting out peace. And um, mm. while he was meeting with these men, Isabella of Portugal went to visit the king and she told him off 
Um, She let him know that he really needed to get over his disagreement with Charles. (laughs) And she let him know that he needed to work on this peace with England thing. And she also told him that he should have paid for Charles's ransom. Her. Like she made it very clear yeah. that his yeah. behavior was unacceptable. Oh, oh, she's sounding boss. I love her. <laughs> she's like, and this is, someone, yeah. someone needed to tell Charles the. I just match her hitting him on the head, being like, "Stop with this foolish behavior." Yeah, pretty much. Um, Isabella, now you were going to go, and you were going to forgive, yeah. and you're going to find. Peace. I didn't even know yeah. who Isabella of Portugal was before this episode. So this is a, a, a really cool revelation. You should look her up. So again, just like freeing Charles, these peace talks keep having stops and starts and things fall through. Um, but the king and Charles finally made up in May of 1442. And Charles got to meet Charles seventh son, Louis. So there was, there was yeah. that. Um... Yeah, so mm-hmm. Louis is an interesting young man, and I'll let you guys talk all about him. You <laughs> yeah. get to him. <laughs> Yay. Louis, yeah. This will be this will be the eleventh uh, yes. for listeners who know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the king gave Liza, Charles. You're some gonna money. adore Louis the eleventh. You, I, I am. For, all, I am. for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh yes, we'll get to it. He is. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You will have so much fun. But I'm going to try to ruin he's... as little of it as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's an episode Thank that you. is going to be so fun that I've been looking forward to since we started the podcast. But yeah, yeah, he like I'm not going to put him in my favorites list, but he's in my entertaining list. If that makes yes, sense, definitely. definitely. Um, so negotiations yeah. finally started in 1444. And Charles had a huge part in this. Mm-hmm. So he escorted the English ambassador, William de la Pole, who is now the Duke of Suffolk, to the negotiations. Um, and these would lead to the Treaty of Tours. Did I say that right? And the first signature on the treaty was Charles's. And it was oh, meant it's, uh, to... Oh, ha- it's just tour, like, oh, like you're saying to it, like... Tour, yeah. Tour is a different place. Oh, thank you. So the Treaty (laughs) of Tour. (laughs) I'll let you fix that edit for me, Ben. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Um, It was meant to have a one-year truce, but the truce ended up lasting five years, which honestly, if you've been going through the Hundred Years' War, is amazing. (laughs) Um, And Suffolk's visit to France also helped get John who's still in England, out of captivity. Hmm. So it took months because everything goes Finally. really slow without non- fax machines and mobile phones. Le- legitimate prisoner. John the legitimate prisoner. <laughs> John the legitimate the prisoner, <laughs> yes. And so he finally made it to France in April of 1445. Gosh. Yeah. Must be like, what? <laughs> what is going Am on? Am I dreaming? Do I still speak French? Like, it would have, because English yeah. was the language yeah, of England at this point. He comes over and is like, would you like some tea and crumpets? And everyone's like, no. Throw <laughs> croissants at him. <laughs> and then Charles was asked by Louis, the Prince Louis, to negotiate between him mm-hmm. and the king in 1456. So I, I had to jump ahead. And Charles declined this offer. Um, yeah, yep. we'll get to it. But the, the Charles and his dauphin Louis who will be really fun. They have conflict. There is a Valois um, father-son thing. I I don't yeah. understand it. Um, but and Charles so, is in the in, in the middle trying to separate them. He's like, them. 
I really can't deal uh, with this. It yes. really does get to that point. So finally, yeah. in December of 1457, yeah. Charles's wife gave birth to his second uh, daughter, Marie. So he was 63 and his wife was 31. Damn. So had his oldest daughter, Joan, been alive, she would have been 48. Damn. What kind of trip would that be as an older father? Like, obviously, he knew his wife was pregnant or everything, and everything like that. But he's 63 yeah. and he's got this new baby. Um, the couple had actually been married for 17 years. So yeah. I am imagining they thought they couldn't have children. And it appears that Marie, his wife, yeah, not his daughter. like a miracle baby. Yeah. She had struggled with illnesses in general. And when she was finally uh. well for an extended period of time, she was finally able to conceive. So Charles VII died in July of 1461, which is, I guess, kind of sad. And he was succeeded by Louis, Louis XI. <laughs> I guess it's whatever. <laughs> it's just whatever. <laughs> and Louis doesn't trust any of his magnates. So any of his nobility, who are all his cousins, I'd like to point out. And this includes Charles. But they got along well for the moment. Louis was the godfather of Charles's only son, Louis, oh. a very important Louis. Yeah. who was born in 1462. Charles and Marie's last child, Anne, was born at the very end of 1464. And it looks like he may never have met her because he had gone to a meeting oh. with Louis and the other Ponce du Song, the, the nobles. And yeah. after assuring Louis of his loyalty, the king screamed at him and publicly dressed him down. Yeah. And this Oof. is... The, again the fourth man third man in the kingdom at this point he's um he's never been spoken to like that in his entire yeah. life um he's like not even the english spoke to me like this no, pretty much pretty much the idea of a king screaming at this rank of man just it, it doesn't happen so he left the meeting to go home mm. and he fell ill along the way and he died at Amboise on the 5th of january 1465 and he was 70 and marie couldn't even make it to his bedside because she'd just given birth to little uh, anne yeah. when it happened so and i did cry when oh. i read that in the book yeah that so, is sad. i really enjoyed doing my episodes on him actually yeah, and if you want to learn even more about Charles yeah. and Orleans, you can listen to it. I have six episodes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about three hours. And listen to the whole thing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I also, I got, you You made it very emotional at the end, and I I, yeah. I, I felt the, the, the feelings. <laughs> I feel like giving feelings to Charles is really important, because yes. he gives us yeah. a He's lot all of about feelings. feelings. He really is. Yes. So. Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, so let's start rating, uh, co uh, comparing these two. So we'll start with Enchante. Enchante. I'm now showing Eliza the portrait of yes. Charles, the Charles of Orléans. I understand why he looks so sad and bloody <laughs> trapped. This is oddly enough his Order of the Golden Fleece picture, official picture, but it's not contemporary. Really? It yeah. looks like he's... Well, seriously, it looks like his buddy when he's trapped in England. I, know. He, <laughs> I, I think portraying him as sad is that's the best just thing. his face. <laughs> uh, they're actually well, yeah, yeah. Suppose your face would permanent sadness. <laughs> yeah, resting, resting, forlorn at a window face. 
Um, so oddly enough, <laughs> for the time, there are no contemporary pictures of him at all. His biography mentions it. It's a really odd thing. His biographer really compared it to mm. John the Fearless because we know what John the Fearless looked like. But mm. Charles yeah. never had time to sit for a portrait, it appears. English weren't going <laughs> to give it to him. But what I love about this portrait is the coat of arms. He's got... It's yeah, I was about to say, He's I love the, it. He's got the serpent of the Visconti yes. on it. So his, his, very, mother, very nice. his mother's there. He was very it's proud really of his like Milanese that. heritage. Yeah. That's good. And then obviously the fleur de lis, because he's, you know, grand, Prince yeah. Dusan. Yeah. Yeah. Prince Dusan. I do like the little castle in the background too. Yeah. I like the detail. The helmet's pretty cool. And he's yeah. rocking the red. He really is. Yeah, he really is. And you can see the fleece around his neck. The other one's sad. Yeah, the second image I've sent you, Eliza, uh, uh, this yeah. is a depiction from the imprisonment, I believe. Yes, and he's in the tower, cool. so he's the man you can tell. Yeah, because you can see the the fleur de, fleur de lis on him. I I think I've zoomed in a few times. Um, Back when the white tower was actually white. You see the one in the window <laughs> up in the tower because he's imprisoned. Yeah. <laughs> and this is know, this is actually an illumination from a manuscript of his poems. And it's in the British Museum, nice. or in the British Library. Very nice, accurate depiction of said place. Yeah. So felicitors will put this on the WordPress blog that is linked with this episode, as we normally do with Enchanté images. Yeah. There's some little boat. Okay, do you have any uh, other details yeah. for Enchanté, Veronica? I, I do. So um, yeah. Charles is quite known for his writing. Um, he is pr- probably for the period the greatest poet um of the period for france and so as part of my series my friend emmanuel from lafayette we are here read two of his poems Mm. for me and i'm going to note really quickly for your listeners since i'm guessing quite a few of them speak french the poems were written in old french and emmanuel translated them into modern french to make it more comfortable Mm. while he was reading it and then the first one is about his second wife's death And this is actually really heartbreaking. So he had learned that she was ill. And obviously he's in England and she's in France. And then he got word that she was recovering. And then he got sent a final letter that she had died. And oh, oh, it's, it's so sad. And in this poem, he asks for death, basically. La. Mort qui t'a fait si hardi de prendre la noble princesse qui était mon confort, ma vie, mon bien, mon plaisir, ma richesse. Puisque tu as pris ma maîtresse, prends-moi aussi son serviteur, car j'aime mieux prochainement mourir que languir en tourment, en peine, souci et douleur. Là, de tout bien était garni et en droite fleur de jeunesse, je prie à Dieu qu'il te maudit, fausse mort pleine de rudesse. Si prise l'eut sans vieillesse, ce ne fut pas si grand rigueur, mais prise la hâtivement et m'a laissé piteusement, en peine, souci et douleur. Là, je suis seul, sans compagnie. Adieu, madame, ma liesse. Or est notre amour départi. Non pourtant, je vous fais promesse que de prière à largesse, morte vous servirez de cœur, sans oublier aucunement, et vous regretterez souvent en peine, souci et douleur. Dieu, surtout souverain Seigneur, ordonné par grâce et douceur 
de l'âme d'elle, tellement qu'elle ne soit pas longuement en peine, souci et douleur. Charles d'Orléans Yeah, and then the second is a ballad for France, and it makes it very clear that he's really missing his home. En regardant vers le pays de France, un jour Madvin à Douvres sur la mer, qu'il me souvint de la douce plaisance que je soulais aux dix pays trouvés. Si commençait de cœur à soupirer, combien certes que grand bien me faisoit de voir France que mon cœur et mes doigts. Je m'avisais que c'était non s'avance, de tels soupirs dedans mon cœur gardé, vu que je vois que la voix commence, de bonne paix qui t'oublie un peu donner. Pour ceux, tournait en confort mon pensée, mais non, pourtant mon cœur ne se l'assoit, de voir France que mon cœur et mes doigts. Alors, chargé en la nef d'espérance, tous mes souhaits, en leur priant d'aller outre la mer sans faire demeurance, et à France de me recommander. Or, nous donne Dieu bonne paix sans tarder. A donc aurait loisir, mais qu'ainsi soit, de voir France que mon cœur et mes doigts. Paix et trésor que l'on peut trop louer, je hais guerre, point ne doit la priser. Détourbé ma longtemps, soit tort ou droit, de voir France que mon cœur et mes doigts. Charles d'Orléans. And I've translated them into English in those episodes as well or I've found English translations for them, and I've read those out on there, so you just have to go listen on there if you want the English. So, sorry. He wrote so much poetry. I find it quite funny. When you read it now, it feels very expected and very, like, it follows the plan of poetry and things like that. Cliché, almost. But it's because he was he was the first. He's what gave us this roadmap to writing poetry mm. where it's all about being like a tortured romantic yeah uh, in a tower <laughs> it's it's very literally it's very <laughs> sweet um and he actually kept uh like this the sons of the minor nobility and a few of the upper nobility as well went to live with him in oh. law and he would have like poetry slams with them Um, oh, and they'd, they'd write it down and he'd write like the final lines to make sure they weren't too cliche in their writing <laughs> because they were following his like poetry protocols. I, <laughs> I, he's in a way, he's kind of a spiritual successor to Barry who also yeah. took in the young nobles and the, the yes. was the guardian mm. of the royal children, that kind of thing. Yep. Mm. He's got this big library and he's like, have some knowledge. Eliza, I am now going to send you a an image, or should I say a pair of images, because we have what's called a diptych from the Bedford Hours, showing yes. Bedford praying to St. George, and then on the opposite panel, his wife, Anne of Burgundy, praying to the Virgin Mary. Um, so these kind of go together. Yeah. <laughs> the um, haircut. But this is, this is the image of... Yeah, he's kind of... He's rocking the the Henry V haircut, but it not as successfully, I think. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, <laughs> his face is so weird. He's got an interesting. He this is a um. It was a bold choice for him to put his face in profile because it is. <laughs> it is this does not work well for hair. <laughs> makes it worse. This is not his the best hair, angle. I mean... <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, like he commissioned the. I don't know. I guess he was just a humble guy. But that's not the important thing. <laughs> the important thing is blind. the beautifully embroidered robe that he has. 
That which is, is stunning. absolutely stunning. His wife matches his so beautifully. Yeah. I like her hair. She's got yeah. Mm. She's got the the glorious horned henan, uh, which of course is the yuck, devil's horns. Queen Isabel. And this is housed in the British Library. So this manuscript was commissioned by Bedford. Uh, it was made by the, quote, Bedford Master. who He's an illuminator in the employ of the Duke and the Duchess. The Duchess was important mm. in commissioning mm. this as well. Um, and nice. he brought the style of the Flemish masters that flourished under the Burgundians to the English court. Mm. Um, or was part of that mm. movement. And it's because of this that Bedford has a kind of resounding visual legacy arguably more than mm. any other Lancastrian, at least of like contemporary images, because he's doing a lot of work to mm. fund these manuscripts and stuff. So it's in a similar vein to the Dukes of Burgundy and the Duke of yes. Berry and like those people who came before. Not maybe not as extensively as those people, but um he's definitely part of this artistic uh kind of proto Renaissance. But there's little things that look a bit like octopuses. They are roots. It is a tree branches? it is a um a felled tree, which was Bedford's personal badge. So Oleon has the porcupine, he has the um uh it's called <laughs> it's called tree. the woodstock. Um <laughs> which I think it may be a reference to Edward the Third, who's known as Edward of Woodstock. I think no, no, no. It was the Black Prince was known as Edward of Woodstock. Yes. Yeah, so it might be a reference to the Black Prince who was born in a place called Woodstock, so he's Edward of Woodstock. Yes. Um, Not the music festival that happened hundreds and hundreds of years Yeah, later. maybe Bedford was a hippie as well, and that's what he's referring to. <laughs> I'm um, so, not without haircut, unfortunately. Um, so, <laughs> Bedford's mo- Bedford also has a motto. His yes. motto is Avus yeah. Antir, uh, which means everything for you. Which is oh, very wow. sweet, and I think it's a reference to his, this ideal he has of like selfless duty. I think it's referring mm. to the king. At first, it's to his father, then it's to Henry V, then it's to his nephew Henry VI. He's giving his all to them, yeah. Which I think is sweet. Mm. So, dis- mm. despite his role as regent, Bedford gets surprisingly little mention in many histories of the Hundred Years' War. He's always kind of shoved to yeah. the side. He's one of those historical figures that's like always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, <laughs> and I think that's because A, he's often considered a loser, um, especially next to Henry V. He wasn't king. Like he, I mean, he he also he also literally yeah. lost, like yeah, yeah it, it, by the end of his yeah. life. And B, he didn't found a dynastic line. I think this is very important because he doesn't have like children, grandchildren, etc., commissioning like biographies of him. That would have to remember him. put him in the spotlight a bit more. Um, whereas Charles of Orléans has that in spades. Yes. Plenty of descendants who Yes. Do his a lot. son's pretty interesting. <laughs> yes, his son, his grand... Yeah, they're all... We'll get to them. Uh, you, you, you will. <laughs> hint, hint, hint. We'll hint, get hint. to them. Um, his granddaughter. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's no House of Bedford. Um, and um, sort of he lacked powerful descendants to back to like beef up his significance so that's part of why he doesn't mm. have the same legacy that um yeah charles bullions has but he does have a contemporary portrait so yes, he has does. that over mm. with that all said what do we want to give for enchante eliza and if you need more poetry i do have one in english i can read you <laughs> hey we've done the poetry <laughs> i think i'm gonna have to go with the 
poem. Oh! <laughs> oh, so Charles of Orleans has won on stage. To be honest, I thought this is how it would go. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's just he doesn't... He leaves more of a... Yeah, I, I think... <laughs> Bedford is kind of just in- influential in a kind of conventional way. Like, mm. illuminated manuscripts, like, everyone's commissioning those. But yeah. Charles's poetry makes him He's just like out. a... Dull note. Yeah. How dare <laughs> you? Well, How dare you? you know. Um. So moving on to that head does not help. <laughs> moving on to on guard. On guard. What are what are Ch- Charles's favors for for on guard? Charles, he um he started a civil war nominally to see his uncle restored <laughs> to power before he was seventeen. And what's more important was that at that young of an age, he was able to unite the majority of the nobility in France to stand up against John the Fearless. And it is really disappointing that Barry folded to keep his pretty palace from being destroyed, but it's pretty impressive. (laughs) My library. (laughs) What was I doing at 17? What were you guys doing at 17? Not leading a civil war and nodding for exams. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then after, you know, all of that happened, he worked towards peace between England and France, even while a hostage. And then once he returned to France, he kept working towards peace. Um, and he helped to yeah. literally stop Charles VII from running away from peace conferences, like assigned someone to watch him. And he's the first signatory <laughs> of the Treaty of Tours. <laughs> yeah. Charles needed a baby. Even though I too totally understand why you'd want to run away from a peace talk. Oh, yeah. They do sound like they'd be rather dull affairs. Um, so and I do understand that. There's one more thing. He is also legally the Duke of Milan, like as in Milan oh. in Italy from 1447. Yeah, Milan. And Ooh. a few times he did actually try to take back the duchy. It's, it's very complicated. But his son yeah. Louis um, would would actually do it. <gasps> yeah. Oh, good on his. I don't Again, know if Milan felt but... that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so just, you know, civil war at 17. Nice. Okay, so Bedford, during his time as regent, Bedford continued Henry V's successful propaganda efforts yeah. to legitimize English rule in France. He continued successfully op- occupying French territory and, like, actually doing a pretty good job governing it compared to the chaotic situation that had been there before um but henry's death made all of this a very uphill battle Mm. um england no longer had the war hero figurehead to stand behind nonetheless bedford is usually seen as a good guy doing his best even by hostile french chroniclers Mm. So he definitely earns, like, the Good Uncle Award out of the oh, yeah. English royal family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of selfish wins... Yeah, he's definitely, I feel, like, <laughs> even with his motto, it's for, it's he's about other people. He's about other people, yeah. He, he does He does end up becoming sole regent of both England and English-controlled France. <laughs> but I don't think he would have been bothered if he didn't become that. Yeah, it's purely because Gloucester alienates everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, um, Humphrey. <laughs> his wife Anne uh, does a lot of the heavy lifting in maintaining the alliance with Burgundy, mm. which is the only way that England is able to hold Paris. And when she dies, it all kind of falls to crap. So, yeah, a lot of it is relying Hold on up. his wife and also in Gloucester yeah. not screwing things up, which he does. So, <laughs> but Anne also, she, she does bring a lot of Burgundian wealth and splendor to Bedford's court. And I think that's kind of a 
a little point for that's not you know power and prestige and that kind of thing but point for her yeah though. yeah i i'm afraid i'm afraid i might know where this is going <laughs> yeah but he's just not he's too selfless he's too selfless <laughs> he's also he's good. not the one out of these two who basically helped win the hundred years war so. like yeah. he could have if he was being selfish he could have yeah. easily taken power and like become king yeah yeah, yeah, like he had so many but, opportunities. But Bedford that. never got captured. <laughs> uh, but I don't think he really battled enough to be captured. Yeah, yeah. But he had to stay behind. I mean, he was in that naval battle, which was quite impressive. Yeah, um, it's very battle of. Slaves. Okay, I feel like it's a lot harder to capture, get captured in a naval <laughs> battle though. I mean, it's battle. easier to just die. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, so. A lot of things could go wrong in a naval battle. So, so, you're Eliza, on, what do you think? You're, you're on a floating <laughs> tinderbox <laughs> with guns. Um, uh, with guns, yeah. But I don't know if I'm going to fight super hard on this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go again. All right, so that's two, part. two for two for. Sorry, it's, it's only oil. fair. We might make it up in the next one. It's only fair after last time. So moving on to Vulevu, and I feel like Bedford might do a bit better in this round. I, I think he will as well. Vulevu. But I get to go first, so. His poetry, honestly, is a, a gem for French culture in general and the people. Um, and yes. his negotiating skills helped France stay France. And I think that's really important to note. Nice. Is that he kept <laughs> France from becoming English, <laughs> unlike Bedford, who wanted France to become English. So really, this is an argument for everything Charles did and against Bedford. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that is such a good argument. Yeah. But but when Bedford <laughs> is ruling the people of France, he does pretty well. He's I would doing argue. fine. He's doing fine. And he's nothing but selfless in all of this. Like <laughs> at the expense of his own career, yeah, he is constantly working off his butt to de- defend Henry the Sixth in his increasingly <laughs> dubious claim to the French throne. And but... he sticks to his guns on the king he supports, which is more than I can say for many French lords. <laughs> Except not including Orleans. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah he had yeah. that one moment. He does stick to but... his guns. Yeah, he does. And... But I'm looking over at the Burgundians going, mm, and... <laughs> <laughs> he brought the Burgundians back into the, uh, as in Charles did, back into the French fold, so that's... He did. He did. But Sorry. Bedford was really nice. <laughs> he was. He was, I will he say. Was he's, he's really He was nice. personally quite nice i mean th- this episode i was prepared for bedford to just be like an evil villain like he's always depicted in like oh, no. joan of arc stories oh, but no. he's not he's it was i mean um he is I mean really to joan, like him. but then everyone oh, yeah. everyone in on the english side was mean to joan because they just all saw her as a witch um charles the but, seventh wasn't that nice to her <laughs> like, yeah so bedford is like her, he he does have one bastard, but otherwise he's good to his wives. Um, he sadly doesn't have any children. If he did, I think he... Well, any legitimate children. Mm. Um, but he's a great father to his one son. Yeah. He gives him a castle, which is oh. pretty good. <laughs> but um, that's not what he did for the French people. Or the nation. Yeah. As a whole. <laughs> I, I do really like Bedford as wit- well. 
like he's winning points for personal uh, character he's not winning points for overall i like but this is kind of the one where like we're doing would you want to live under him yes but that is my argument the french people liked living (laughs) under him that is a good argument not liked but they it was okay like you know he seemed to what you said he like improved stuff Mm. if you were to ask the people of normandy who lived during bedford's reign they would say yeah he's a pretty good ruler but the people of Normandy, once it was taken back by the French, were actually Charles's people at that point. He had quite a few towns there, and they were pretty happy about it then. Yeah, I guess it depends <laughs> where in Normandy you are. Yeah, she goes, oh, sorry guys, it's <laughs> such a tough spot for me. Oh dear, okay, I'm, I'm being I'm being outflanked at every turn. I see. <laughs> sorry, Veronica. Oh, after losing last really? episode, Veronica's come in like with she's just come back for vengeance. I did spirit. six episodes about him, so I was. And really she is prepared. doing it very well, I have to say. Like, I thought going into this section, I thought hands down it'd be Bedford. But now I'm going, oh. And I haven't even pulled out my trump card spoiler because I won't do it. I'll let Ben do it when he, oh. yeah, I, I'm excited to listen to the episode. Let's yeah. just say Charles's son, Louis, is very important to the continued prosperity of France. Oh my gosh. Let's just He's say that. amazing. <laughs> Then again, he was a regent as well, Bedford, for all of England. Yeah, Bedford was an actual regent, whereas Charles is just a. Maybe Charles was. But I think that's a, that's a that's uh, an argument point... for the on throne. I think. Yeah, I definitely do not win the on throne. <laughs> it's the only category I know I'm going to win. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yep. Oh, this is hard. Because it depends. I'm going it from a, a neutral perspective, but if I'm going it from like a French perspective of being a French person, <laughs> then I go for Charles. But I'm going from a neutral perspective, I probably go for Bedford. Charles was really yeah. popular in his holdings. Just saying. <laughs> it was, so was Bedford. Oh, true. Very true. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. You lost. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. I'll accept my my loss with the grace and dignity that I imagine Bedford would have. Oh, um. that's, that is actually really good. That is. Yeah. Bedford would have done well. Anyway, let's go into Ula la. Ula la. Charles was excommunicated in 1411. Oh, <laughs> um, oh, that's a big point. And he did sign a treaty with France's enemy, England, that same year. And he sent his younger yeah. brother, John, the legitimate one, to England as a hostage. And he had to send someone, but, you know, John was 12. And he basically had to be forced to apologize. Yeah. Charles did try to get his ransom paid, but it ended up not happening until after Charles himself returned to England. So he left his brother in England. Um, and here's the shocking thing, actually. Charles didn't have any illegitimate children, which is amazing. But he did have a love affair. So there's a, an English poem, like as in a poem written in English. Yes. And if you read yes. the, the first letter of each line, in the original Middle English, spells out the name Anne Mullins. And this is likely a cousin of Alice Chaucer, who was the wife of his jailer, William de la Pole, the Duke of Suffolk. So, yeah, he potentially spelled out his secret lover's name in one of his poems. Is she related to Geoffrey Chaucer as well? Uh, Alice Chaucer is, in fact, Geoffrey Chaucer's daughter. 
Yes. Oh. Yes, the, the nice. Chaucer family was actually quite close to the English throne at one point. Yeah, they married well. <laughs> they they did. Delapole's son, their son, Alison Delapole's son, is, is very important in English history. Well. <laughs> Sorry about this one. Bedford is a, li- <laughs> is a little bit weaker in this department, uh, probably because he's a bit of a goody-two-shoes, goody and he doesn't leave a trail of love poetry behind him. No. Uh, but we do know. <laughs> We do know that he recognized at least one legitimate child, Richard, albeit one he took very good care of. Mm, um, I wish I could count Humphrey <laughs> of Gloucester's scandal for Bedford, but alas, oh, alas. That is we don't, such we don't, not his scandal. But not his scandal, and we don't have time to get into that whole category. Oh, it's such a good scandal. <laughs> but Charles was excommunicated, so... Sure, that is a big one. I do, we haven't had that in a while. I do love a good excommunication. <laughs> so at this point, we actually forgot to say who the winner was for Ulala, but uh, due to excommunication, it was definitely Charles of Orléans. Just to confirm that, because we don't actually say it in the episode, but I think it was just unspokenly obvious to all of us. Moving on to Lovey on Throne. Lovey on Throne. Uh, luckily for Bedford. Rather straightforward. Yes. Um, so the closest that Charles of Orléans actually comes to being an official regent in France is in 1415, when he scares John the Fearless out of Paris, takes control of the royal forces. Unfortunately, the Battle of Agincourt happens a few months later. Yes. So <laughs> it's a very brief uh, quasi-regency for Charles. Yes. Bedford, by contrast, is uh, the official, official, like, capital R, regent of English-occupied <laughs> France from Henry V's death on the 31st of August, 1422, until his own death on the 14th of September, 1435, which is just over oh. 13 years. Damn. He wins one round. <laughs> yeah. Well, rightly so. Rightly so. But, however, this does mean that Charles of Orléans, surprising nobody, will be on our <laughs> of regents uh, the other people that we read oh, i'm not sure if we should spoil the other episodes for veronica no i haven't Have you... had a chance to listen no. to them i mean you won't you won't have been able to listen to the last one because it hasn't been released yet no. um this is the fifth and final episode in the regency <laughs> of madness the regency Ooh. of madness is complete yay we got through it this we... is <laughs> this was very fun. This was also a nightmare for me to organize. You did so good. <laughs> having five you consecutive episodes yes, with a different did. guest each time and everyone having holidays at different times. It was an absolute nightmare. But we got through it we and we did it and I'm never nightmare. doing something like this again. Uh, but, but it was fun to have this little mini tournament just as, as something yes. fun to do to cover the crazy complicated period that is the end of the Hundred Years War. Um, next episode, we will be doing king charles the sixth and we will be finally giving him his scores we'll be going through everything that's going on from his very confused perspective um poor guy and we'll be getting hard for me to be like impartial for this to give uh, him like a decent thing because i'll be like yeah i love you and we'll be getting we'll be getting more in depth into his affliction. Well, I feel like I'm going to be way too generous, and Ben's going to have to be the harsh one for once. I there there will have to be some difficult truths uh, in in Charles' episode, unfortunately. Yes. Um, that's the next episode, and 
there will be a poll for the Regency of Madness to see which regent Ooh. you guys think should be the top regent. <gasps> There's going to be polls on on two different places. We're going to have one on our WordPress for our listeners to vote on for free. But then on Patreon, we're going to have a different situation where your vote counts differently depending on what tier you're on. Oh, so wow. those in the nosebleed section will get two votes. Those in the Economy Plus section will get three votes. And those in the VIP box will get four votes each. So nice. if you pay more, you have more power. That's democracy. <laughs> <laughs> That's democracy. It's so true. And uh, also, paid listeners could, could also theoretically vote on the WordPress poll. So you kind of get five votes if you're a VIP okay. patron. If that's, not a, if that's not an incentive to upgrade, I don't know what is. Uh, wow. So that is where you can this I poll. like this idea. We'll run, that, we'll run that poll for the next like month or two. Maybe in like our Christmas episode, we'll reveal who, we'll the, who the winner is. Um, that'll be on there. If you're listening to this in real time, if you're listening to this in November um, of 2023, you'll have about a month. Uh, so get on that. Is this a vote often, vote early thing? <laughs> yes, vote often, vote early. <laughs> be rich, give us money. Woo-hoo. That is the <laughs> that is the, uh, the call to action. Sounds good to me. Um, so yeah, let us know. If you really have to, you can get a sugar daddy so you can afford it. <laughs> yeah. Let us know which of our supreme regents is the supremest regent. Yeah. Um, Who's the maddest one of all? So with that said, do you have any 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 parting words, Veronica? Um, I did want to say in defense of Bedford that I actually really enjoyed because I've I've read about him quite a bit earlier um I enjoy him reading about him in general and I think he's actually a cool guy so I'm glad I won to someone who's that cool um and I just and I I enjoy Charles of Orleans so I'm glad I lost him um and Charles (laughs) he's honestly been my favorite subject thus far to cover um, I wish there were more books written about him. I feel like he's a really overlooked yeah. person. Maybe you'll have to write one. Um, I'm a little busy <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> um, Maybe in like five yeah, years. Yeah, <laughs> once all the kids are in school. Um, but I just, I find it fascinating how much work he put in to reunite France. And it's, you know, his work and mm. his brother's work and you know, keeping Charles VII on track is really impressive. Um, and then he was, you know, also a, an artist, a, a poet. And yep. yeah, I, nice. I wish more people knew a bit more about him. So the message is, if you get in prison, become a poet. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and mm-hmm. just, you know, leave a lot of interesting stuff behind. And yeah, check out my episodes if you do want to listen to a bunch of poetry. And you know, do have to advocate, don't do something to send yourself to prison would probably be better <laughs> than writing the poems. <laughs> don't get captured at the Battle of Agincourt. Yeah, just yeah. avoid horses and battles generally. Yeah. Um, so with that, all of that said, that is going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye.